So, who do you think of when we talk about authority? We all have pictures in our minds, maybe individuals that come uh, to our minds that embody authority. It could be Winston Churchill, as he set his sights on the dismantling of the Third Reich of the German army, or even Mike Ditka, Ditka, who coached the 1985 Chicago Bears to the Super Bowl victory. Or even for my youth, the confident General Norman Schwarzkopf, leading men to war. Men, people that uh, just embody authority. And every one of those suggestions are worth reading and learning, but all fail in comparison to Jesus Christ. Mark Dever said, human authority is like soap. The more you use it, the less you'll have of it. All human authority is derived, it's given. Human authority will eventually run out. It's clear throughout the Bible that God's authority is underived. It never runs out. And we have Jesus Christ. He is the fountain of all authority and the well from which all believers must draw for, for proper use of authority in the church in this fallen world. And this morning, we're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we're finishing up, Lord willing, Luke chapter 4, and it's all about authority. Jesus' authority. And it's a passage about God's sovereignty. It's a passage about Jesus' power. It's a passage about the kingdom of God and the issue of the kingdom of God. And it's vitally important for us to, to learn and study it and understand it. And so here is the main point. Here's the, the main idea. So if you write down anything from this morning, get this this morning to help us just understand what we're going to look at here uh, in Luke 4. The main idea is the sovereignty, power, and authority that Jesus displays is not for worldly show, but for proclaiming the kingdom of God. The sovereignty, power, and authority that Jesus displays is not for worldly show, but for proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so, uh, here, here, this is what I'll cover the remaining verses here in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 44. And there's four points that we'll dive in and see. Um, we'll look at Jesus' uh, teaching with authority, his working with authority, his healing with authority, and last, his, his mission, what his mission is. So first, Jesus taught with authority, verses 31 and 32. Look there in Luke chapter 4. And if you're unfamiliar looking in the Bible, uh, the, the large numbers is the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. So we're at Luke chapter 4, verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And what we get from this, again, is that Jesus was no ordinary teacher. He, he taught with authority. And this was in direct contrast to the current teachers of the day, the, the rabbis. And Luke is showing us the clear and distinct difference between Jesus and the current religious teachers. See, when rabbis taught, they, they tended to quote, other rabbis, that that's where they derive their authority from the number of rabbinic sources they could quote, quote on any given topic. And so as we covered last week, just look back up in the chapter, verse 18, because Jesus is going to, as we read last week, reads the passage in Isaiah and then gives his sermon. He says, the spirit of the Lord is with, upon me, verse 18, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down in the eyes of all 
in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, it would have been electric, I think, in that moment to hear the word of God shared, read, and instead of the normal rabbi response, well, this person says this, and this person says this, Jesus says, no, it's been fulfilled today. It's total contrast to the rabbis. You know, they would, they would just go back to all these other sources. That, that's that's w- the only authority they had. And Jesus comes and he's declaring with authority the meaning of God's word to them in their midst. And he's centering the teaching on himself as the one who's fulfilling these prophecies. And Jesus is the only one with authority to teach this way. I found Tim Keller's explanation helpful. He says that this word authority literally means out of the original stuff, and it comes from the same root word for author, which I find very interesting. Luke means that Jesus taught about life with original authority rather than derived authority. He didn't just clarify something that they already knew or simply interpret the scriptures in a superior way than the rabbis did. No, his listeners sensed somehow that he was explaining the story of their lives as the author himself, and it astonished them. He didn't speak just as a wise teacher, but more like an intimate friend who knew them. And he talked in a way that showed that he knew them. He knew their plight. He knew their struggles. He was no ordinary teacher. Jesus' authority here in his teaching means he explains life as the author of life. He teaches the Old Testament like it was his autobiography, and the people are all amazed. Have you ever heard an author describe a book that they wrote? I mean, it's one thing to read the book and be challenged by it, but then to hear the author talk about it just gives a whole new meaning of the story. I think I shared this a few months ago, but I I found it interesting. Um, I'm on Twitter. Anyone else on Twitter? Just me. It's 2020, just so you know, folks. Twitter a few months ago, and and I didn't see this originally by the author, but someone had retweeted it. You guys can look that up later. Uh, of an explanation of, of someone trying to understand this author's viewpoint and a character in their story. And they give the response, well, this character did this and thought this. And the author themselves tweeted back and said, well, actually, no, this is what they did or this is what they meant. And you would think, wow. And the person responded back, no, that's not what they did. <laughs> and someone wrote back to him, you know, they're the author. They, they know what they were thinking, why they were created to do. And this is how Jesus approaches his teaching. He's the author of life. He knows what they're thinking. You know, as a parent, parenting teenagers, I think I know what my daughter's thinking. She knows I don't. But Jesus knows our thinking. And not only that, he he knows what we're wrestling in our hearts. So they're amazed, they're astonished because they're sitting under his teaching and they realize this guy is different. He's teaching with authority as the author himself, just unearthing what's going on, not only in my heart and mind, but with others. Others. 
See, the, the rabbis taught with derived authority. They had to quote someone else. So that all of their theology came second-handed, but, but not Jesus. Nothing comes second-handed to him. When he speaks, he speaks with complete authority. So friends, how do you respond to Jesus' teaching in the Scriptures? Do you recognize it as authoritative? See, Luke will make it crystal clear throughout, the script, throughout this book here that Jesus' teaching is not to be dismissed by anyone. Not by philosophers and teachers and preachers and leaders and demons, not by anyone. So how do you respond to the teaching of Jesus? And are you ready to submit to his authority over your life? Well, Jesus moves from teaching to working. And this is where we show that Jesus' authority extends to another realm of life. So second, Jesus worked with authority. Jesus works with the authority by casting out demons. And most, if not all, of recorded instances of, of demonic possession in the Bible occurs in the days of Jesus' ministry on earth. There are some references in the Old Testament of demonic activity in Samuel and Kings, and there are some mention in the activity of the apostles, but mostly, most of the activity centers around Jesus' ministry. And perhaps the reason is that Satan threw the full weight of his power against this region because he knew the Savior would, would minister there. He, he, he recognized that. It seems like all the forces of hell appear in an attempt to undermine the ministry of Christ. And the Bible tells us elsewhere that one of the most important tasks of Christ was to destroy the works of the devil. So we shouldn't be surprised that he engages in a moral combat with the demonic realm. And so look at here at verse 33. And I, and I want you to notice something peculiar, okay? Verse 33. And in the synagogue... There was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. And what you notice here, you run into the devil in the most surprising places, don't you? Didn't expect to find a demon-possessed person in a synagogue or a church. But maybe you haven't been to church in a while. The world and entertainment makes you think that demons only lurk in dark and creepy places. But what we find here is a man possessed while attending church. And Satan takes over a man and takes him to church. Satan loves to oppose Christ's work right where the Lord is meant to be worshipped. And this man has an unclean demon. And I tried to research that even what it meant, unclean demon. Aren't they all unclean? It could mean the way he was possessed caused him to be unkept or dirty constantly in the, in the muck and mire. Or it could mean that this demonic presence makes him morally unclean? I don't know. But I do know he's under this tyranny of a demonic spirit. He's not depressed. He's not suffering from a psychological disorder. He had a supernatural being who was trying to cause him spiritual and physical harm. This is a confrontation between Jesus and the forces of evil. One commentator, Norval Geldheis, says the demon possession was not merely ordinary form of mental disease, as some writers have alleged, but a special phenomenon, which was particularly frequent during Jesus' earthly ministry, and this was directly connected with his coming to destroy the power of darkness. I know there's more to say about demon possession, and I want to cover the subject, because Luke's going to bring it up multiple times, but I'm not going to cover it this week. Instead, if you're very interested in, in reading and understanding spiritual warfare, I have a book here. I've got three copies that I would highly recommend that I'm willing just to give out to read by Pastor Jim Osman. It's called Truth or Territory. 
and I think it'd be very helpful to read through what the scriptures say. He just kind of walks you through uh, the, the scriptures and then these sort of issues with spiritual warfare. But we'll come back to it as we go through the gospel of Luke. Well, how does the demon respond to Jesus? Look at verse 34. He says, ha, what have you to do, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? It's interesting that he uses the plural, and we'll see more later. But then he identifies who Jesus is. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Here we have a man in the synagogue screaming, and the religious people have no answer. But with the command... The Lord Jesus Christ rules over this evil spirit. He has the power and authority to control even the forces of darkness to command Satan and his minions. This spirit has no choice but to obey the voice of God. There was no magic formula to what he did. It doesn't say Jesus waved his arms and repeated some special incantation to try to manipulate it. Jesus spoke and the spirit obeyed. And I will say one thing here about demon possession and our response. If you try to mimic Jesus and everything that he does in ministry on earth, then you haven't understood who Jesus is and why he came. It doesn't say anywhere our response and what we're to do. It just explains what Jesus did, his authority, his power. And unfortunately, there are many teachers today who try to emulate Jesus, and they don't have his authority, and they don't have his power. Look at verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. See, everyone gets the point. Jesus' authority is like nothing they've ever seen. And Luke is showing Jesus' authority and power over the demonic world. He teaches with authority, and here he works with authority and power. And here uh, we get the word dynamite from the word, the Greek word for power here. It's something enormous, something explosive. And the people were astonished when they saw the forces of hell trembling in the presence of Jesus, for they recognized what they recognized earlier, that Jesus had this authority this dunamis, this dynamite power to command and they obey. And then you see the response, verse 37. And reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. Word is getting out about Jesus and the authority and the power he displays. And people will hear and people will respond. But Jesus not only teaching with authority and working with authority against the forces of hell, he's going to be concerned of the plight of physical illness too. So third, Jesus healed with authority. Verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. Luke doesn't inform us that it's Peter's house because he hasn't introduced him to us yet. But he does give us some information here that Mark doesn't give in his gospel account. Dr. Luke says Peter's mother-in-law didn't just have a fever, as Mark says. She had a high fever. He uses a, a technical medical language here, as you can expect a physician to do. In other words, he's identifying this fever to be dangerous. Uh, 
And we read of those present appealing then on her behalf to Jesus. And how does Jesus deal with this sickness? Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever. And how do you rebuke a fever? Well, friends, you don't. You cannot rebuke a fever unless you're a king. You cannot do it unless you're the author of life. And I'm about you, but you see a lot of nonsense on TV with uh, personalities and preachers healing on stage. Kenneth Copeland earlier in the spring when COVID sprang up was seen on TV, TV blowing COVID away, rebuking it. Fortunately, it didn't work. I, I, we've not seen it work here because Jesus has the power. Luke says the fever left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. And this is obviously a woman of godly Christian hospitality because the moments after being healed, she begins to serve those that are present. But more importantly, this is where I think we need to understand, this was a display of Jesus' authority to fully heal. And her getting up to serve is part of it, but it's the fact that there was no delay. It's showing his power and his authority. There's no delay. When she's healed, she gets up and she works. It wasn't medicine that took some time to work in her body. No, the, the healing went instant by the power and authority of Jesus' words. As we read through Luke's gospel and even the other gospel accounts, we, we recognize there's a lot of miracles that are performed during his earthly ministry. And he, he didn't do it to teach us to expect a miracle. Rather, he, he did it to confirm his identity as the Christ. The apostles did similar things when they preached the gospel. Miracles can still happen today, and God has the power to do what he wills. But friends, we shouldn't rely on miracles to believe in Jesus. That's the congregation's problem that we saw earlier in Nazareth, right? Instead, we should believe the word of God. And we can still ask God today to heal ourselves and others, but God is wise enough to not answer that prayer because sometimes he has more in store for us. Commentator Michael Wilcock imagines what Jesus might say to us when he chooses not to answer the prayer for healing. He says, perhaps he would say something like this. I could, I could of course, give you immediate relief, but I would rather take the opportunity to do something more far-reaching, which will be to your greater benefit in the long run. You'll find it more protracted and perhaps more painful, and you may not understand what I'm doing because I may be treating disorders of which you yourself are unaware. And what would Jesus do then but to set to work to deal with the needs of the whole person rather than the obvious need only? He may aim at the calming spirit or a strengthening of courage or a clarifying of vision as more important objectives than what we could call healing. So what about this whole COVID mess right now? You know, God could wipe it out at any point. You know, I've heard it from some of you, and I've heard it in my own heart, that we want things to be done. We want to go back to normal. And to be honest with you, I have sympathy with that. No one loves this much change this fast. That maybe it's like when God's people left Egypt and all they wanted to do was go back to the life it was. 
The problem is that our vision of what things were like is sometimes clouded, sometimes misguided even. And whether you want to believe it or not, we are exiles right now. So perhaps God wanted to pause all of our church programs to get our attention to what is most important in ministry. Perhaps God is purging his church of those who only wanted to come and consume rather than to come and worship. Perhaps God wanted you to spend more time with your family and friends. Perhaps God wanted you to be more involved in your child's schooling than you ever thought was possible. Perhaps God stripped you of some of your friends and time with others so that you could spend more time with him. Perhaps God wants just to remind us to trust him more than anyone else. Perhaps God wanted to take away all those supports that we've built up in our life and to take them away so that we would trust in him fully and not falling back on those supports that we've put in place. I want to trust him. I want to wait on him and not my own wisdom. And I want our church to continue to learn what it means to be the church. To love one another when it's hard. When we don't, we don't see everyone every week all the time. And to care for one another when it's really inconvenient. And I'm praying that we as a church family understand how important a church family is during this time. I'm praying that we will never take it for granted the joy and privilege to join with other Christians for worship. I'm praying that we won't be half-hearted towards our involvement with this family here. And so let's continue to pray that God would remove COVID. But let us understand that his answer may not come the way we think. It may be no. So that we can cultivate a calming spirit amid chaos or a strengthening resolve to be involved in each other's lives or even a, a clarifying vision on what is most important for life. So these could be more important for our life than just going back the way it was. Well, it wasn't just Peter's mother-in-law that he healed that day. Look at verse 40. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The word continues to spread about Jesus. Those suffering from diseases come, and Jesus sees every one of them. This is not a planned revival service with planted people in the audience to wow. These are real people with real suffering. And he says, Jesus lays his hands on every one of them and healed them. He didn't turn anyone away. He didn't sell tickets or ask for an offering. He sat with them well into the sunset. Every person, every disease. I often wonder why people who claim in this world to have healing power don't simply go to hospitals and heal the sick. Why do they rent stadiums and sell tickets and have cameras filming them? See, that's something truly demonic. 
pure, have the ability to heal, and yet you use it to build a name for yourself and building your bank account, then you're not doing it for the Lord. You're doing it for yourself. And when Jesus heals, it's not for himself. It's always real and genuine for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. Luke says that these people wait until sundown on the Sabbath to come. These are good, law-abiding Jews sitting and waiting until they could be healed. And their friends willing to step up and serve them, hopefully with a chance for them to be rid of their diseases. These are inconvenient people, messy people, hurting people, and Jesus sees every single one of them. And what a labor of love for our Savior. Willing to serve others, even after, I'm sure, an exhausting day of ministry. We could learn something from our Lord. Are there kinds of people who would not feel welcome in our church gathering? Are there kinds of people that you would never consider inviting over for a meal? Are there kinds of people that are not worth your time or effort to get to know, to spend time with? Are there kinds of people that you find too messy, too inconvenient to share the gospel with? How should we deal with those that are inconvenient to us? I pray that we can grow in our Christ-likeness and ministry to others and following Jesus' example here. Well, Jesus not only healed diseases, it says in verse 41, and demons also came out of many, crying, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. In this chapter, Luke 4, between the people and the demons, who understands the truth about Jesus? Sadly, most boisterous are the demons. They know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the chosen Savior. Demons know this. Remember last week, the people in Nazareth don't know him. They ask, isn't this Joseph's boy? And he will even take Peter all the way up to, to Philippi to give a testimony to the person of Christ as clear as the demons do this day. Doesn't this speak of how spiritually blind we can be to the truth that is right in front of us? Friends, don't let demons that cannot be saved acknowledge more about Jesus than you who can be saved. The demons have enough sense to ask in verse 34, have you come to destroy us? You see, they knew he would, and they're asking about timing. They knew that their time was short. They knew their days were numbered. They know exactly who Jesus is, but they do not treasure him. They do not trust him. They knew exactly who this man was, but they do not put their faith in him. They do not want to follow him. They know Jesus, but they don't love him. I want to speak briefly here to all the youth that have grown up in this church, kids. Your parents have been faithful to bring you to church, to Sunday school or WANA and VBS, but your parents can't trust Jesus for you. You might have all the right answers about Jesus. You'd be able to explain to us who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and what Christians should do and think. 
But my question to you is, do you love Jesus? Are you walking with him? Are you striving to read the Bible, to learn about him and what he's done? Do you treasure Jesus? Does the knowledge that you have about the Bible, about who Christ is, does that make you love truth? Does the knowledge you have about Jesus in the Bible make you hate sin? Does the knowledge of Jesus Christ make you trust him and love him more? Don't leave, don't leave these incredible truths that are proclaimed to you from God's word each week to rattle around somewhere between your ears and never settle deep into your heart. Friends, embrace the truth with all that you are in the, in the very depths of your heart and love and trust and believe and follow Jesus with your whole life. And if you're struggling to walk this path, don't do it alone. Reach out. Talk to your parents. Reach out to me. Reach out to Pastor Ryan and Zach and the other youth leaders. I'm tired of talking about COVID. I want to talk about Jesus. So reach out to us, especially your mom and dad. Don't, don't let today end without reaching out to them. Even just saying, just pray for me. Pray for me to love Jesus more. And parents, I want to encourage you to keep loving your kids. Keep sharing the gospel with them. And I want to remind you, in case you've forgotten, your kids' repentance is not your responsibility. You are not the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. I'm not the Holy Spirit for my kids. I need to trust in him. We need to do that. We keep giving them the truth. We keep striving to love them and point them to Jesus, and then we trust God. Keep entrusting our kids to him, and we wait on him. There may be some of you here also are listening online that are not Christians. And just like the demons in this passage, your days are numbered. The days of your sinful rebellion against God are running out. You will either end your rebellion by repenting of your sin, confessing it to God and asking for forgiveness through Jesus Christ, or Jesus will end your rebellion by demonstrating his holiness and so don't sit here this morning in your sins and ask God, how have, how have you come to destroy me because of my sin? See, the wise person repents. The wise person turns from their sin of self-righteousness and turns to Jesus Christ. The wise person recognizes Jesus and his total authority over their life, and they gladly submit everything to him. So be the wise person. Recognize who Jesus is this morning and confess him as Lord over your life. Don't allow an evil spirit to respond more honestly to Jesus than you. Well, you see how the demon responds here in this passage to Jesus. This is the second time he cries out, you are the son of God. He acknowledges. Earlier there was a shout, now there's crying out. My question to you, church, 
Do we, as a church, acknowledge Jesus as loudly and boldly as them? Are we in some way ashamed to acknowledge him? And do you notice how quickly the demon obeys Jesus? Are we quicker and more joyful in our obedience to Jesus? See, they obey because of the sheer authority over them, but Jesus shows us love. And isn't that a more motivating factor for us to listen to his word and to strive to obey it happily? A few of you email me during the week when you're reading the passage, and I love getting those emails. You have questions, and, and one question I got this week was, why didn't he let the demons speak? And it could be that Jesus didn't permit the demons to speak because he would not tolerate confessions from evil spirits. Commentator David Gooding says, if Satan and his demons may, for tactical reasons, sometimes say what is true, or they may be forced against their will to say what is true, they never say it out of loyalty to the truth or with any intention of leading people to believe the truth. See, Jesus didn't need the servants of hell to declare his identity. Jesus doesn't need the witness of demons for ministry. This is our responsibility as a church. We are to be the witnesses of who he is in his work in this world. So we've seen the, the three errors of authority of Jesus in his teaching, his working, his healing, and last in the chapter as we finish out is Jesus' mission statement. It says in verse 42, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. If you were to turn over later this afternoon into Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 1, gives us more details. Mark 1.35 says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. What we learn in this situation is Jesus had this compelling desire to spend time alone with his Father. An example that should challenge all of us. If finding opportunities to pray to talk with his father are important to Jesus, it must be important to us as well. Even when ministry is bustling, Jesus takes time away to spend time with his father. But the people kept coming. Mark's gospel says this, Luke says here, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And Jesus gives his clear mission statement for ministry, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He, he isn't here to share good advice. He's here to declare the best news the world has ever heard, that there is a rescue for them. Christ has come. His kingdom has come. And the kingdom of God is simply the rule of God, the extension of his divine authority and power. And that power was now present in the person of Jesus Christ, whose calling was to share the message of God's redeeming power for the world. See, the people wanted more healing, more extravagant works. But Jesus says, I came to preach. He must preach the good news. It was necessary. J.C. Ryle, writing about this, is the mere fact that the eternal Son of God understood the office of a preacher should satisfy us that preaching is one of the most valuable means of grace. 
to speak of preaching as some do as a thing of less importance than reading public prayers or administering the sacraments is to say the least to exhibit ignorance of scripture. Preaching has to be the center of the ministry here at Edgewood Bible Church, no matter who stands behind this pulpit. We as a church are only as strong as the declaration of God's word from the pulpit. That doesn't mean that other ministries aren't necessary. Jesus wouldn't stop ministering to people and healing and doing good works, but none of those other ministries would supersede the preaching ministry. And Ryle continues, he says, let us beware of despising preaching. In every age of the church, it has been God's principal instrument of the awakening of sinners and edifying of the saints. The days when there was, had been little or no preaching have been days where there has been little or no good done in the church. Let us hear sermons in a prayerful and reverent frame of mind and remember that they are the principal engines which Christ himself employed when he was upon earth. Do we believe in the power of preaching? Friends, may we never discount what God can do through the preaching of his word. We find in Luke's gospel that wherever Christ went, the kingdom went. When men and women come to him in faith, the kingdom enters their hearts. Christ rules their hearts. So what about you, friend? Have you ever officially submitted everything in your life to the rule of Christ? Your will, your future, your ambitions, your longings, your career, your spouse, your children, your independence, your heart, have you submitted to Christ's authority? I pray that God would use this passage this morning for us to continue to submit under him joyfully and that we would honor and glorify him with our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that diagnoses our hearts and exposes us. And your word gives us a way forward to love you and to serve you. And your word is active and living. This Bible is not a dead letter with musty stories meant for people only 2,000 years ago. It's for us. And we thank you for your servant, Dr. Luke, who wrote down these stories so that we could be drawn to you, to love you, to serve you, to to know you. And we ask that you would help us to obey. Keep us from being blinded to this enormous truth and reality of your glory. And may we take your word with us this week in the world. Help us to live for you. Help us to not be ashamed of who you are and what you're doing in this world. But help us to boldly proclaim the gospel. And when we fall and when we fail, help us to turn back to you, to submit ourselves to you. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for the privilege that I have to declare your word to your people. And may you use it this week for your honor and glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.